0: Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we look in depth at the biggest issues facing the world's most exciting region. I'm Andrew People. Well, US President Joe Biden has notched up his first 100 days in office, typically a stage where we can look back and take stock of where a new administration is headed. For those of us outside America, there's a particular focus on Mr. Biden's foreign policy, of course. So in this episode, we've assembled a panel of experts to get the view from Asia about what's changed and what hasn't since Mr. Biden came to office. From South Korea, we're joined by Jaewoo Chu. Jaewoo is the Professor of Foreign Policy in the Department of Chinese Studies at Hee University. And from the US, we welcome Dr. Satu Limay. He's the Vice President and Director of the East-West Center, where he directs the coincidentally named Asia Matters for America initiative. We're also joined by Haruko Sato. Haruko is the co director of the IFOR Research Center at Osaka School of International Public Policy at Osaka University. Indeed, we're fortunate to be partnering with the IRC's Korea Foundation project on Korea and Japan in the evolving China US relations space for this episode. Welcome to all our guests. Well, I'd like to start with a question for each of you in turn. We obviously know that Joe Biden was vice president under Barack Obama, who called for US foreign policy to pivot to Asia. But we also know that he was elected this time around in part because many Americans had turned against Obama's successor, Donald Trump. So when it comes to policy towards Asia so far, where do you see Biden lying relative to his two predecessors? Is there any sign, for example, that the pivot to Asia is being revived? Satu, could you take that first? We're recording just after Joe Biden gave his speech to Congress, marking his first 100 days.
1: Yes, well, good morning, good evening to everyone. And thank you, Andrew, uh, for having me on your podcast and delighted to join my colleagues uh, from Korea and uh, from Japan. My own sense is there are two immediate Uh, continuities from the Obama administration. One, of course, is the president himself was the vice president, deeply engaged, deeply interested in Asia. And the second is if you look at the personnel and the staffing of the Biden administration, including, for example, the the so-called czar for the Indo-Pacific at the National Security Council, Kurt Campbell, was President Obama's Assistant Secretary for East Asia and the Pacific, uh, serving under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. So in terms of personnel, there's a huge continuity. More fundamental uh, for American national policy is a kind of 20-year continuity in U.S. uh, emphasizing and prioritizing the Indo-Pacific region more. That goes back, people forget, but goes back to 2001 when George W. Bush administration brought in India into the National Security Council under Asia, and there was a real Uh, kind of early pivot, what I call the initial early pivot to Asia, which was interrupted by the attacks of 9-11 on the United States, which kind of distracted and disrupted that turn towards Asia. But since then, as you know, it's continuing to be consolidated, so much so that by the end of the Trump administration, the Department of Defense's national security strategy on Asia simply stated in its opening remarks that the Indo-Pacific theater was the department's priority number one. So that gives you a sense of, I think, the fundamental uh, enduring policy continuities as well as the administration's personnel uh, and proclivities priorities.
0: Haruko, the view from Japan, Is there been a big break from the Trump era or do you see continuities or do you see policy returning to the days of Obama? What, what's the view from your part of the world?
2: There are a couple of interesting things about how Japan's welcomed Biden. Traditionally speaking, U.S.-Japan relations, and particularly the Japanese policymakers and politicians, have preferred the Republican Party uh, (laughs) over (laughs) trade issues uh, or, or anything else. Basically, it's always been sort of working closely with the Republican Party, seems to have been more of a familiar for many of the Japanese. However, this time round, partly because of uh, Obama's successor, President Donald Trump's sort of rather impetuous foreign policy, sort of transactional foreign policy decisions, I think this is, despite the first time that Japan has actually sort of welcomed uh, a democratic uh, president. This is not to sort of stress the fact that uh, Japan's not worked well with uh, Democratic presidents, but this goes actually connects to how the Japanese have viewed the Obama administration, particularly as Satu was referring to the pivot to Asia. I think this is something that, at least in Japan, it was something that didn't quite seem as what it was supposed to be. This is not to say that uh, America's policy towards Asia uh, was sort of lacking attention, but I think if you look at those particular 20 years that Sotou had just referred to as a continuity, it's also about America's sort of engagement with China, or at least from the Japanese perspective, uh, a bit of a lack of engagement with china in the way that japan wanted china was on the rise at the time and then it started to make some challenge to the, the status quo in the indo-pacific or particularly the asia pacific region and i think in a way for those 16 years of president bush and president obama's policies towards asia were seen to be a little wanting in terms of addressing particularly these security concerns, never mind the trade part, we are in a very interesting juncture. My last point would be that there are, or there were, some very sort of strong Trump supporters, particularly because he was seen to be very strong against China. And so I know that some Japanese sort of uh, commentators and policy sort of not so much experts, but at least talking heads on television, uh, were very much sort of rooting for Trump to win a second term. In a way, it seems that what U.S. does or has been doing to China has been very much part of a pattern of how Japan sees the United States in the past 20 years.
0: Interesting. J. Wu... What are your thoughts from, from Korea in terms of what you've seen so far from the Biden administration? I mean, are you seeing a return to the Obama days, or are you seeing some continuities with the Trump era?
3: I'd rather say the latter, probably. Unlike his article, Why America Must Lead Again, uh, he doesn't seem to go back to some of the points that he made. For instance, like the trade uh, tariff issue. I think he's going to stick to what Trump has said uh, for China. Uh, In the article, obviously, he mentioned about reconsidering the tariff uh, policy against China. But uh, I think it was last month that uh, he came out and he's going to keep that intact. And other than that, uh, we see a very much continuity of policy, uh, not only towards China, but also to North Korea. That is a Biden administration policy uh, carrying over the policy of the Trump administration. And uh, not to mention that uh, we feel kind of concerned that uh, he might take a tougher stance than Trump administration. And I think that's why the Moon government is very much intimidated by the fact that, unlike Trump administration, Biden administration is going to be more passive in engaging with North Korea, as well as China, plus the Biden administration might add it on the, another twist to Trump administration's policy to China and North Korea, that is human rights issues. I don't think uh, we'll be left with uh, too much uh, room for maneuverability uh, when it comes to uh, human rights issues if that is raised seriously against these two countries.
0: That's interesting. So whereas the Trump administration... Seem to downgrade concerns about human rights in its foreign policy, and as you said, was was more transactional. The other thing we've heard a bit about um, around the Biden administration is a return to multilateralism and a desire to work with allies. Again, from the point of view of Japan, Haruko, how's that been viewed so far? Has there been much substance to that sort of uh, rhetoric that we've heard?
2: Well, I think this is probably... um... Very important and coming as a sigh of relief. A very important signal to the world, and particularly America's focus on Asia, is Prime Minister Suga from Japan was the first to visit Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago. There are not many surprises in the the statements that were announced after the 150-minute talk or so. But I think this sort of reaffirmation of the alliance's importance and working together, I think, um, is is very much uh, welcomed by Japan and comes, as, as I say, a sigh of relief, uh, rather than having to, to sort of worry about what sort of bullets were going to come from the Trump administration. So this sort of going back to what's important, I believe, for the United States, as well as for uh, particularly the the global order right now, I think is is there's nothing really to contest about. But it really does also depend, as Jay Wu says, how these particularly like engagement with China is really going to be.
0: Satu, the Biden team has talked a bit about this idea of a, having a foreign policy that's more aligned with the interests of the U.S. middle class. Again, what has that meant in practice so far, and what do you think could be the implications for its alliances and its approaches to countries in in Asia?
1: Secretary of State Blinken gave a very important speech uh, on this issue, foreign policy for the American people. Uh, Not long ago, the president has emphasized this. The National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, has emphasized the middle class foreign policy. He was involved in some reports prior to the election uh, that spoke to this issue. Uh, it's a little bit tricky to tell all of it, but I, I, I draw your attention to a couple of things. First, since the 2008 2010 financial crisis in the United States, unlike the 97 financial crisis, primarily focused on Asia. That was a real shock to the American sensibility. And last night, the president spoke about, quote, blue collar blueprint to build America. Mm. And the way that this is primarily being focused is a rejuvenation, a uh, re-energizing, a revitalization of a democratic American approach to rebuilding its weaknesses. That's racial, social, equity, diversity, gender, class, internet, broadband, infrastructure, health, rural and urban communities. So it's a fundamentally American domestic project The way it links to Asia and in particular foreign policy are twofold in that context. One is that it sets a kind of, if you will, uh, a narrative or ideological contrast to an autocratic state-led way uh, of doing business or approaches that's directed from a party or from a a small elite. And the second is, um, and this is where it's a little bit uncertain as of yet. What does that mean for commercial relations with Asia? Right. We know, we know for example, uh, protecting supply chains, resilience and safety and security of supply chains from China, protection of intellectual property, the issue of making chips from Taiwan and Samsung and Korea. We know about those issues. They get a lot of press. But it does leave open the question, and we're not sure yet 100 days into the new administration, What does this mean for big ticket items? I am on record, having testified to the US-China Security and Economic Review Commission, that my fundamental worry is that trans-Asia, that is to say, intra-Asia integration between China and the region running from India East is moving at a faster rate than trans-Pacific integration, which is integration commercially between the United States and the countries of the region. And that is further cemented by the passage of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which includes the ten Southeast Asian countries and six uh, regional countries: Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea, etc., China, and the Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the replacement to the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the Trump administration withdrew from. I see very little support as. Jay Wu talked about continuity on Chinese tariffs under the Biden administration. I see very little prospect of an early movement on joining CPTP.
0: Could that change if the Biden domestic economic strategy comes off? In other words, if all this stimulus that they're pumping into the economy, the $1.9 trillion stimulus that's already passed and the other plans they have to spend trillions of dollars on infrastructure and so on. If that works and America starts growing and growing strongly again, post pandemic and and simultaneously the vaccine rollout starts to work in America too. Could you see a situation down the line where the Biden team can say, okay, now it's time to sell a return to trade deals like the TPP. Or is this just something that's kind of off the agenda in America now for for a while?
1: Well, this is the, uh, the trillion-dollar question. <laughs> this, is, this, is the, this, is, this is the big enchilada uh, that faces America-Asia policy. The day-to-day issues of Chinese peer competitorship on military obviously exist. They are not imminent. They are not tomorrow, next day, next five years. I mean, there's going to be a constant struggle. We have to continue to maintain our military capacity and capabilities. But as I am really trying to emphasize, the economic dimension is massive. Uh, There are two variables that will affect uh, our re-engagement on trade, I think. Big trade agreements. I mean, big trade agreements. I don't mean digital trade or trade on a particular sector or a country or that kind of thing. I'm talking about big trade agreements a la NAFTA and TPP. I think there are two variables. One is the health of the U.S. economy, inevitably. And the second will be the politics. Remember that the Obama administration's first U.S. trade representative was a mayor of a Texas city. I believe it was Houston, if if memory serves. Point in saying that is that there was no stomach for big trade agreements in the first Obama administration in the midst of the 2008-2010 financial crisis. President Trump further exacerbated the opposition to trade agreements, including NAFTA and TPP. There is Hillary Clinton also in her run for the presidency against Mr. Trump also pulled back from supporting TPP. We will have to look at two things coming down the pipe. One, how well this six trillion dollar, five trillion dollar, whatever the dollar amount ends up being, package revives the US economy. Uh, expectations are we'll have 7% growth over the next year. Um, if the American people and the American public uh, supports a very strong recovery, then I think there will be political support for being a little bit more flexible on trade. The second will be the political, pure political dynamics of control of the House and Senate. And if you look at the midterms coming up in 2022, Obama didn't move on TPP until his second administration. But I would remind you that trade is a fundamentally difficult project in American foreign policy. It goes back to NAFTA, it goes back to the Korea-U.S. Trade, free Trade Agreement, which passed with the largest support of any U.S. bilateral free trade agreement in history. But it took two administrations and several years to do so. And I expect the same with CPTPP. My most hopeful moments are when we will get back into CPTPP, and our, our partners are, are going to also face American negotiations on this. It's going to be tough for them, too, for us to dock on to this agreement. So we're, we're facing a very interesting time on the trade front, commercial front, and Korea is going to be important. Uh, Korea is not in CPTPP, and if the U.S. does join, uh, I think Korea is going to be an outlier. Um, I think Japan is going to be welcoming of TPP. That's the official position of Japan. However, when we come back to the negotiating table, remember that for America, the big payoff of TPP was essentially a bilateral U.S.-Japan free trade deal nested in this multilateral deal.
0: That's a fascinating insight into the economic aspects here. Jay Wu, if I can, I'd like to turn to the hard power aspect to all of this. Have you noticed from Korea any change from the Trump era in terms of the signals Biden is sending on the U.S.'s willingness to deploy military and naval forces in Asia, under Trump, there was a lot of backwards and forwards over the US's military presence in Korea, for example. Yeah. Are Asia's US allies like Korea feeling any more reassured about US willingness to stand behind them militarily? Or is there a sense that as with Afghanistan, I mean, Biden's already decided to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, that this sort of US withdrawal from the world is is continuing?
3: There were indeed some moments like that that we felt uh, not assured by the Trump administration because of his idea, of his, his lack of confidence in the idea of alliance. But uh, in the end, at the end of the day, it turned out to be that it was only a bargaining chip to uh, his uh, poker game. He just wanted to uh, lessen the burden that America has to share with the allies in the Pacific. And he came out to be... Uh, just, uh, just, 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 like what he wanted, and I think the Biden administration was able to succeed in uh, raising the cost of uh, uh, burden sharing on the part of the Asian, Asian allies uh, like Japan and Korea. President Trump played the poker game very well against the allies, but it, it, in the end, he didn't really mean to, you know, withdraw some forces from the allied countries, where he, he didn't he didn't mean it. But uh, instead, I think on top of that, Trump administration also succeeded in selling more hardwares to the allies, and especially South Korea with the THAAD and, and, and so forth. The Moon administration has set the record in making deals of more military weapons procurement than any other previous uh, administrations. So I guess we can tell Trump how Trump is really a wise businessman here. But at the same time, I think Biden administration is going to be more forceful in pushing all these military deals in terms of hardwares uh, down the throat of a, a South Korean government. Uh, because I think there's some pending issues regarding more deployment of hardwares to South Korea and, uh, for instance, uh, mid-range missiles that are capable of uh, carrying nuclear warheads. That issue is going to be a pretty thorny issue to both South Korea and the United States. But the United States, uh, for the coming days, I think uh, this is what they have in mind. And it's going to be displeasing, breaking news to probably China in the future.
0: Haruko, how significant do you think it is that one of Biden's first big international meetings, albeit by Zoom, obviously, was with the leaders of the Quad, the other members of that being Australia, Japan, and India? Do you sense a desire that they have to develop that forum into something deeper, a more collaborative security arrangement, even something like NATO?
2: Quad is um, each to their own. People seem to want to... Invest into Quad, whatever they think is necessary. The impression I got uh, from this particular uh, occasion is that it's not so much between the four countries that we were talking, but rather ASEAN's reaction, and also perhaps uh, with uh, Korea also in the purview, because I attended a few uh, meetings regarding ASEAN and them worrying about the Quad competing against their cherished idea of ASEAN centrality, which I think is an unnecessary worry. But in any case, the blueprint for Quad, I don't think is all that very clear. But the point about it is that for the Japanese, at least you know that it's the the very sort of important framework uh, for dialogue to, in some ways, deflect China the other thing is about the increased security dialogue between Australia and Japan. I think that is the one that might be interesting to follow and how it develops. Um, it really might turn into an alliance or there may be more concrete uh, cooperation uh, between Japan and Australia. So I think it's a bit too early to make any projections about the significance of that particular Quad meeting back in March.
0: I want to turn to specifics now. Arguably the biggest news story in Asia during Biden's first 100 days has been the return to power of Myanmar's military, his first real foreign policy test in many ways. And of course, the subsequent unrest that we've seen in that country that's um, leading to, to so, so much death and uh, arrests of, of activists What have we learned, Satu, from the Biden administration's reaction to this? Could they, should they have done more? Is there more that they could do now going forward?
1: Right. On Myanmar, this is a really uh, tough case. The Biden administration was going to heavily emphasize uh, what it thought was insufficient attention to human rights. Though I would note here, uh, parenthetically, for those who aren't used to the U.S. system, Congress has been extremely seized and closely and intensely active on the Myanmar issue throughout many administrations for three decades. So the first thing I'd like to say is that the Biden administration was very quick off the mark to condemn to work very actively across an interagency process to respond to the Myanmar crisis. That includes sanctions on various entities, obviously members of the Myanmar junta, coordination with allies in Tokyo. So across ASEAN, in Europe, uh, UN, elsewhere. So very active, very responsive, as you might've expected given the signaling that it uh, gave on human rights and democracy values. The situation is awful. I would like to really cite a, a thread of American views that in foreign policy, there are a few kind of clear and easy solutions. Otherwise there wouldn't be foreign policy challenges. And Myanmar is a really tough, tough case We don't have huge amounts of leverage, nor does anyone else. That has been the case for 30 years. U.S. policy has been characterized by a heavy emphasis on Da Aung San Suu Kyi. And um, I have to tell you that the Rohingya issue and what happened in Rakhine State has created clearly some very mixed views that did not exist prior to Da Aung San Suu Kyi taking power. So we are now in a rather very interesting where no one uh, has any truck for the Myanmar junta and it's outrageous in my view, behavior of shooting unarmed civilians. But the NLD won the elections free and fair by stunning uh, margin that I think really caught the Tatmadaw by surprise. And uh, the tools we have are sanctions. The tools we have are to ostracize the military junta It remains to be seen what kind of official relations we'll have with the Myanmar government in exile. It's an evolving situation. I do not think this will end clearly. The question for me is, is there sufficient basis between the Burman majority and the ethnic minority groups to create a kind of unified government that can isolate, isolate, marginalize uh, the Myanmar junta? If they cannot do that to a certain extent, internally, absent physical external intervention, which I think is highly unlikely, though one reads op-eds about this once in a while, I cannot see how Myanmar can um, move forward with a domestic consensus. It's hard for me to see the Tatmadaw breaking down and fracturing and being um, torn apart internally And it's also a little bit challenging to see how the ethnic parties, groups, regions, and the majority form a workable consensus that can take on the military in a civilian domestic consensual project. So we're at loggerheads. I think this is going to roll out for some time. This is not, I mean, the details may be unprecedented, but the storyline of Difficulty in establishing a sustainable, democratic, uh, free and fair system with a, with a very powerful top down is something that goes back since Burmese independence. So that's where we are. And it's going to be a challenge that the uh, Biden administration and I fear subsequent administrations will continue to grapple with.
0: Satu, can I stay with you to discuss... Uh, another big event that's taken place during this first period in office for President Biden. And that, of course, was the meeting in Alaska between Biden's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and his Chinese counterpart, Yang Jiechi. And that meeting seemed to quickly, at least before the cameras, seemed to unravel into a pretty sharp war of words in a way that we haven't seen too often directly between the two sides before. Biden also talked in his speech a bit about the challenge that democracies like the US face against autocracies like China. Should we be concerned that this relationship is going to deteriorate further? Or do you think that that meeting in Alaska, that was mainly for the cameras, it was mainly to sort of set out both sides positions, and there, there is a relationship that can go forward in some areas. What's, what's your assessment about the big question, which is really US-China relations?
1: Yeah, Andrew, that next to the economic and commercial issue question for US policy in Asia is the other trillion-dollar question. So we're, if, if anyone's keeping a ledger, it's, we're now up to $2 trillion worth of question spending. <laughs> um, look, look, there's three things here. One, on US-China, there is no question that strategic distrust and strategic competition with near-peer narratives from the US side and from the Chinese side are here to stay. Uh, If there's one continuity that's been building, you know, like uh, many things, little ebb and flow, little wax and wane, little zigzag, little step forward, step back, but the trajectory of US-China relations since roughly the beginning of the 2000s, the 21st century, is a trajectory towards strategic distrust, towards strategic competition, and towards peer competition. That's one. Two, for America, for roughly decades now, we have been articulating an alliance and a China policy that's This is very crudely put, but on two tracks. And there was, in my view, a certain debate. Do we get alliances right with Korea, Japan, Australia, Thailand, Philippines, partnerships, India? Do we get those right and therefore shape how China behaves? Or do we get the US-China relationship right and then the rest of Asia falls into place? This is very important for my interlocutors here on this podcast from japan and korea because just as every country and capital in asia fears that u.s china are going to come to blows there's always a lurking beneath the polite discourse concern that beijing and washington will cut a deal that will cut a deal on north Korea. will cut a deal on south asia if you go to delhi there's always well what you know U.S.-China will cut a deal. So we're, I think those days are over. I think because of the strategic distrust and, and competition and strategic competition, we are in an era when there is not a China play that will reset everything in Asia. And in fact, things are getting more complicated because of Taiwan, Hong Kong, human rights, a- economic statecraft, as I mentioned. But the surface differences at Alaska for the cameras appears to belie a more constructive and workmanlike meetings behind the scenes. One uh, and number two, for example, Mr. Xi's availability for the climate change summit last week. So are there areas where we can work together? And the administration has been quite clear. If you read their interim strategic guidance, if you read the speeches very carefully, you see that they will compete where they must, cooperate where they can. And that's an open book right now. Just how much can we cooperate? And I would flag one final comment on this, is we're not the only players in the US-China discourse. As I have said time and time again, Asia will navigate, they will take the best from both. They will not quite play off US and China, but they will certainly try to, as I put it in recent testimony, they will try to work very hard to stay on the good side of the United States and work merely to stay off the bad side of China.
0: Well, let's follow up with Jay Wu and Haruko on that very fascinating point. Uh, Jay Wu, what is the perspective on US China relations? from Korea at the moment, what's your view of how things might develop and do you have the concerns that that Satu laid out there?
3: Yes, uh, I I very much agree with uh, Dr. Lamai's point of view and I think uh, his his, his narrative is very telling and uh, I think that's why we are most concerned with uh, the current administration's policy towards China. And South Korean government is also very much concerned, just like I mentioned before, uh, it feels very intimidated by the, you know, Biden's administration's potential policy and its outlook in the future because we are very much pressed by both countries because we're an ally with the United States and our economic dependency on China is very much high, number one, in all areas. So uh, we're, we're in a kind of dilemma and it's been a tradition, so, so, so-called tradition that it seems like you know, we're compelled to make a choice between the United States and China. Uh, whenever there's a foreign policy issue raised by either country. The current administration, is uh, it, it is a progressive party that is uh, uh, really both the National Assembly and the leadership uh, in, as of today. And they would like to very much lean towards China because of the practical reasons, such as the economic reasons. And they would like to be more uh, independent and autonomous uh, when it comes to dealing with uh alliance issues uh, with the United States. And I think that's where the conflict arises for the progressive party leadership. And at the end of the day, they're very much, uh, for, for these reasons, uh, the, the progressive leadership very much feel, feels intimidated by the Biden administration's China policy.
0: That's fascinating. Haruko, do you see, detect something similar in, in Tokyo at all? Or is there a different... Uh, view from from japan's perspective
2: the u.s china relationship has been always particularly in the past 20 25 years uh, a concern for japan because japan would has one of the the fear of abandonment by the united states when it's not quite able to manage relations with china um, not just to mention about the history issues but generally speaking, uh, for economic reasons as well. So I think the situation is very similar with Korea. On the other hand, I think in Japan, our domestic layout, uh, the political parties aren't that different when it comes to distance or relations with China, say, as it might be in Korea. Um, I think the last time when we had the Democratic Party of Japan with Uh, Prime Minister Hatoyama Yukio trying to sort of pivot to China. I think uh, we all know that that was a bit of uh, a disaster, partly because I think it was just uh, the only wisdom of that was to be anti-Liberal Democratic Party, sort of anti-conservative. You know, at the moment, you know, the, the Liberal Democratic Party is also pretty much set on being very cautious against China, but at the same time, not quite ready to be fully confrontational, although there are a lot of you know, these anti-China voices, but at the same time, trying to find a way to manage relations between uh, China and United States. And in the Japanese case, I think the one thing that might stand out is that what Japan does, uh, sort of the signals that Japan gives off, whether it's over uh, Taiwan, Uh, or some of these other issues, such as Myanmar, um, these uh, sort of more value-oriented, like, democracy issues that the Japanese have never really been fully engaged with in the past, but only because it's becoming important uh, vis-à-vis how we sort of deal with China's, sort of the bad side of China. I think the Japanese are in a perhaps, I wouldn't even say, I wouldn't say pivotal, but in a, in in an important position to sort of be on the right side of, say, history in in the very long run. Because I think democracy, issues of democracy, it's not just with, uh, you know, Southeast Asian countries, but I think Asia as a whole, having various issues where the, the, it's not just sort of the populace, but the the threats to freedom of press uh, or human rights, all of these things are actually being undermined or sliced away slowly. And and in that sense, I think Japan for the first time in its post-war history or post-war relationship with the United States might be confronted with these sort of value related issues
0: That's really interesting. And of course, that would have implications for what Japan says about what's happening in Xinjiang or Hong Kong and so on and so forth. Thank you all for that. I wanted to finish up uh, time, unfortunately, has flown by. There's so many uh, avenues we could go down and so many ways we could develop this discussion. But I, I just wanted to finish up really by asking each of you in turn, what pitfalls, what challenges, maybe what even opportunities you see lying ahead, we've got things coming up. We've got the big environmental meeting, uh, climate change meeting later this year in the UK. Then we've got the Olympics uh, later this year in Japan, but of course the Winter Olympics coming up in Beijing, which could be a controversial issue. But, but what do you each see? Maybe we'll start with Satu. What do, do you see as potential troubles ahead or potential opportunities even?
1: Right, well, thank you very much indeed, Andrew. And of course, uh, to my colleagues uh, on this call as well, Jewoo and Haruko, I've flagged three things. First, uh, we haven't said much about this at all. I don't, I don't know if the word has been used. Uh, COVID-19 still hovers. The situation is very difficult in India. It's very difficult in the Philippines. I was talking to our colleagues in the Philippines the other night, uh, it's complicated elsewhere. Uh, the strains are unpredictable. Uh, we just simply don't know. Last I looked in Haruko in Japan, there were four prefectures that were on lockdown. Uh, I, I just um, I'm befuddled how July 23rd or, or whatever the precise date is for the opening of the Olympics can happen mm-hmm. under such conditions. So first of all, I, I do want to flag that we're not over COVID. If you look at the Philippi, Fiji's contraction, its uh, economy is expected at 20% contraction. We're going to release the Asian Development Bank Economic Outlook for 2021 later on this month, and um, the outlook is not pretty, and that's with baseline projections, forget uncertainties and hiccups. So COVID is first. It's both an opportunity and an extraordinary challenge. The opportunity is for the U.S. to get clearance for AstraZeneca to become part of the solution for vaccine distribution as we begin to successfully implement vaccinations across the United States. The second I want to emphasize is because of COVID, but also separately, is the regeneration of economic growth and employment and livelihoods across Asia and the United States in this case, and what that will mean for the future structure of relations. I've highlighted this in this call quite a lot because I do think this commercial picture is going to be critical. Everyone knows that public opinion in Asia, see the ASEAN 2021 survey, thinks that China is the economic gravity weight for the region. I do not completely buy that picture, but over time, unless things are done to address it, it could very well be because the US is a huge economy along with Canada and Mexico with its European transatlantic ties Um, But if if these become separated out because of resilience, risk, supply chain issues, uh, intellectual property, all the things I flagged earlier, that would be a huge opportunity and test of U.S.-Asia relations. And finally, I would end with climate change. This is new and back on the agenda. It's come and gone. There's a lot of um, uncertainty in Asia, whether the U.S. can be counted upon to maintain this. Uh, given the politics and changes in, in uh, approach. But climate change is huge. The climate uh, summit uh, last year, uh, last week with the leaders um, was important. Uh, we are tracking to get China and India and the U.S. now back on board. Will it proceed? This will have huge consequences also for Asia, which as many, many studies show, particularly Southeast Asia, Pacific region, parts of South Asia, Bangladesh, others, are really heavily going to be implicated uh, by climate change more than other places and much more early than other places. So those are the three issues I would flag, the more traditional ones, U.S., China, managing alliances, all of this, you know, North Korea's unpredictable behavior. Of course those exist, but I was asked to flag three issues of opportunity and challenge, and I would flag COVID, commerce, and climate change.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent response, Jay Wu. From your point of view, similar question: Where do you see the big challenges, or even positives that could come in in the near to medium term?
3: Yes, my takeaway could go either side. Uh, I think it's about the United States leadership. It's about you know trans-Pacific integration, and I think uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, Quad and T12, Clean Network, uh, whatever, you know, that if you all put, them, put them together, I think one critical uh, variable is definitely American leadership. And I like to see America stick to its word, must rebuild its leadership, uh, not to mention its influence in the region. So I think America is really at a critical juncture here not only on the, the, you know, military front, but also economic front and COVID and uh, whatever, you know, uh, I think uh, the world is in need of American leadership and to realize all these uh, initiatives that Biden administration had already put forward to facilitate uh, these ideas. I think uh, a very critical variable lies in the American leadership and I'd like to see American leadership get stronger and, and Keep its word in the future.
0: Haruko, the need for America to keep its word, is that a challenge that you see for the future? What other thoughts do you have about um, the path forward for the Biden administration now?
2: I very much agree with uh, what um, Sutu said and also what Jayu said. And on the point about moving forward. And uh, the challenges for the Biden administration, actually, if we read the leader's joint statement between Suga and Biden a couple of weeks ago, I mean, it actually does cover a lot of these issues that Situ raised from COVID to climate, as well as sort of the economic fundamentals, so on. And the and and some of the issues that are directly addressing these um, sort of competitiveness and resilience partnership which is an interesting document, which goes from actually having sort of uh, innovation in and cooperation and building sort of 5G and 6G networks uh, together. I think these these efforts are are very at least promising if both countries keep to their words. I mean, at least uh, you know the, the Americans put in 2.5 billion dollars, and Japan is also committed $2 billion to the, the connectivity and digital connectivity issues. So I think these are sort of uh, good things if we both move forward. But my point, I think, in terms of what we should be watch out for, and I think Biden administration's managing of it would be crucial, are the, the, the changing of leaderships or elections that are coming up in the next couple of years. That might also include, we might get a new prime minister in Japan, might get a new president in Korea, and we might actually get Xi Jinping for another third term. And so I think America is now in, Biden is in a unique position to oversee sort of transitions in these three Asian countries. And once if, for example, uh, Xi Jinping wins his third term, we start to have to be a little careful about what he might do or what China might do towards, for example, Taiwan and become much more aggressive towards say Hong Kong and all of these other things. So my sort of one signal would be these three uh, elections
0: Well, thank you for flagging that. And thank you to all our guests today for their time, obviously, but primarily for their clear and thoughtful analysis of what's happened under Biden so far and and what might be happening into the future. Thank you so much to Rebecca Bailey for producing this episode. Thank you to Alexander Lestrange, who does the music for Asia Matters. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We have a website, asiamatterspod.com. Please go and have a look there. We have our Twitter account at Pod. Please do contact us there. And also, please, if you like what we're doing and you'd like to leave us a a message or a rating, you can do that on the various platforms, iTunes and so on and so forth. Thank you, as I say once again to our
2: guests. Thank you for listening and goodbye.